It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Everybody, welcome to. Ooh, turn this down a bit. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Astro Coffee Hangout. I'm adjusting my volume as I talk. I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.space, and you are back to Astro Coffee Hangout, three o'clock on Thursday. My guest today is Dr. Brian Keating. He's an, he's a professor of physics at the University of California at San Diego. He's also the author of the book Losing the Nobel Prize, which. I guess you lost it. Is that right, Brian? Is that right? Yeah, well, arguably I was in the running for it. It's actually a double entendre, as our French uh, friends would say. It's sort of the story of how I came very close to arguably being selected for it. In fact, being asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize in uh, 2016, and then coming up with ideas for reformation and rebirth of the prize and losing it and sort of losing it in the colloquial sense, getting rid of it in its current form and revitalizing it in a way that's representative of how science is done today, not in 1901. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in just a little bit, but I, sorry, I got the, I, uh, I just, uh, spiked everybody's eardrums because what you're hearing and what I'm streaming are two different things. So you should be, you should be better now. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. All right. So, uh, yeah, we're going to get more to, to his book, but before we get started, a couple things I want to let you guys know we're live on YouTube. We're, I'm definitely looking at the chat here, Adam Synergy and John. I'm so good to see you guys again. It's really good to have you back in the, in the fold. And, um, uh, we are, also going to uh, part of the reason that uh, Brian's joining us here is he wants to also promote his YouTube channel. Now you can go to his YouTube channel. The link to it is in the description box. There's also a link to his book as well if you want to check it out. But Brian, you want to you want to promote your channel a little bit? You said you had some stuff for people. Oh yeah. Who, uh, so I have um, I have a piece of the villain of my book. You know, most 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 books that have villains, you can't actually give away the villain of, I don't know, uh, what's my favorite movie? Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. No, that's not my favorite. But it's, <laughs> oh, it's, really? It's okay. Uh, I'll say, actually, I watched uh, Return of the Jedi last night on, uh, <clears throat> on uh, the flight home from uh, Princeton University and, uh, you know, Darth Vader, somebody like that. Okay, so you can't include him in a book about that, but you can include uh, a piece of meteorite. So this is a meteorite that fell... Was fell in, in Argentina, they think in about 1500s, in a place called the Campo de Cielo, the field of the sky. And this meteorite is 4.3 billion years old. I've actually done chemical uh, assays of it using X-ray spectroscopy provided by one of my uh, friends and followers on Twitter, Brian Field, who's a professor in Long Island. And uh, Brian uh, did a, and his and his colleagues did an X-ray spectroscopic uh, survey of this sample, the same meteorite that I have here. So I'm going to give away. Uh, ten of these meteorites to so the first ten call uh, first ten call the first ten people who sign up for my mailing list <laughs> using uh, last name deep so you put last name is deep and if you live in the U.S. I can send you one of these unfortunately although gravity brought this to you know Argentina the U.S. post office won't let me send these from UCSD uh, to any other foreign countries unfortunately so sign up for my mailing list and my YouTube channel uh, when you sign up for my mailing list use last name deep and I will send this to you. As I did last time on the call, I got several, almost a dozen people that did this, and I sent them meteorites too. So I hope people like it. I hope they see dust for the villain that it is, but also the kind of dual nature of what dust can do for life on Earth as well. Okay, well, what do you, so tell us about your channel. What kind of content do you post? What can people look forward to when they subscribe? So I have a very diverse uh, podcast uh, repertoire with in terms of the guests that I have. I usually have guests that are uh, outstanding authors or achievers in certain fields. So the most recent five or ten episodes have, have been uh, Sean Carroll, everybody's favorite uh, quantum oh, yeah. mechanic, Sean Carroll. Uh, I had on Richard Panic, who wrote uh, the book called The Trouble with Gravity. I had on uh, Jim Gates, uh, Ford Foundation professor at Brown University, my alma mater. And he, uh, and he and I talked about his new book, which is called Proving Einstein Right. And last but certainly not least, most recently, uh, was Dr. Jessica Mayer, 
who is on the space station right now. And she gave a phenomenal interview, and I was uh, really treated and honored to uh, have the chance to speak with her in the most expensive call I've ever made, the most expensive podcast ever. It puts, you know, it puts uh, your awesome production values uh, to shame. I have to say, communicating with the space station is the highest honor. And maybe someday I'll hook you up with her when she's back. Oh, boy. Her. Well, but, yes, that's, uh, that, yeah, that's talking about hanging out with the, with the cool kids. So, and uh, I just got an uh, <laughs> invitation uh, accepted by Peter Diamandis to come on my show. So we get great authors, uh, experts. I had on Paul Davies last week um, who wrote The Eerie Silence. We talked about why hasn't E.T. Uh, phoned home. And I sort of entitled that episode, Why Is There Nothing Instead of Something, which is kind of the opposite of his former colleague at Arizona State Arizona, uh, University, Lawrence Krauss wrote a book, you know, A Universe from Nothing. Right. And this kind of question, the, the notion of if life is so ubiquitous, how come we haven't heard anything? In fact, how come the silence is deafening? So there's about uh, 50 or so videos that I've been on, and I cover all different topics. I've even had on uh, a, a woman who wrote a phenomenal book about achievement by female venture capitalists that seeded Silicon Valley. Julianne Guthrie, she's a good friend of mine. So I have on a mixture of people that are at the highest level, usually in science, but but sometimes outside of science. Wow, man, that's a that's quite a list, man. I, yeah. I didn't realize you were uh, that you were also just uh, that you were talking. Yeah, about sign up. I, mean, I know Sean. I know Sean <laughs> Carroll, big fan. So uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, subscribe. And this is all done. You're doing you're doing all this on your YouTube channel, right? Yeah, doing this all. Yeah, it's part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, which I co-direct here at UC San Diego. Great. All right. Well, so definitely check it out. Links in the description box. Brian, thank yep. you for taking time to talk uh, with us today about all kinds of stuff. But the big thing I want, and I talked to you about this before we got started, the big thing I want to go into here is the early universe. Now, we've had a lot of hangouts. We've had a lot. I've made a lot of videos. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Big Bang and, and the large-scale structure of the universe. But um, I want to dive into the very early moments specifically of the Big Bang. So for those of people who are watching that maybe don't have, um, you know, as much of a knowledge as I'm saying that a lot of my audience has, uh, let's just sort of set the stage so all of us is on the same page here. And I'm going to put up, I don't know, one of these graphics, probably yeah. the, you know, entire universe.jbag uh, or something while you're talking. And you can okay. maybe set the stage for what we know about the universe as a whole. And why do we go back in time and can we go to a singularity and all that, just the basic cosmology spiel, and then we'll go into some specific questions I have. Yeah, so I'm sure most of your uh, listeners and viewers are familiar with the fact that light travels at a finite speed. And it doesn't matter if it's visible light, infrared, heat, or radio waves. And in fact, when you look out in space, you're looking back in time. So when you look out in space, you're seeing something for every foot, something is away from you. You see it one nanosecond earlier than it is actually right now. So this is due to the consequence that light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. And so if you do the math, it's about a foot per nanosecond. Or if you remember back in the moon landing or you've seen videos, it's about a second and a half to travel 250,000 miles to the moon. And then another second and a half to make the round trip. Well, if you look where the moon isn't, and you look where there's no galaxies, stars, or uh, other phenomena, you could be looking back to the earliest possible form of light that ever existed in our universe, at least that's visible today. And that's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. We call it microwaves because in uh, 1965, Penzias and Wilson working at Bell Labs in Holmdel, New Jersey, where I went last uh, November for the first time, that uh, telescope discovered serendipitously that there was a persistent hiss, a glow that was emanating all around us, a background of heat that was uh, later found to be consistent with a very hot early evolution of the universe, which itself was commensurate with the formation of the nuclei. And we'll get into that in a bit. But what that means is what we call the Big Bang is really what we mean by that is the formation of the lightest elements on the periodic table of the elements. And so by virtue of the fact that light travels at a finite speed, and microwaves too, just another form of electromagnetic radiation, we are able to peer back in time. You know, astronomers have only about a couple of things that we actually can do experiments on. One are actually these meteorites. I told you my friend Brian Field, Professor Field, he did experiment on this chunk of rock. Well, it turns out that this is one of the few things that astronomers 
ever get to play around with in the lab and do experiments on. In other words, most stuff that we study comes only in the form of light as astronomers. And furthermore, we can't do a proper experiment. I can't change the temperature of the sun and see how does that affect the habitable zone of possible life uh, forms on uh, in our solar system. So by virtue of the fact light travels at a finite uh, speed, when we look out in space, we're looking back in time. Okay. And so and I've been, while you were talking, I put up various representations that we're all used to seeing of, of these of yeah. these different things. Um, and so we embedded in this, of course, is the idea that the universe is expanding and that it's accelerating as, as it does so. And so by running this clock back, not only are we looking back in time, if we look at a distant galaxy from Hubble, let's say, that has a high redshift. Um, uh, and, and one thing I'd like to, is there an easy way to go from, uh, say, saying redshift to using the number Z? Like, can you say Z equals two and have some idea of how far back in the universe you're looking at? Yeah. So when we say Z equals one, that's the easiest one to associate okay. with. Z equals zero, by the way, is today, is current uh, size scale of the universe. So Z, this redshift factor, represents how much has the universe changed in size compared to what it is today. So if you look to where the universe was half as big as it is now, we call that redshift of one. So we would say we add that redshift, it's doubled in size since a redshift of one. So the size difference of the universe is one plus Z. So today, compared in a ratio to when the universe was seven billion years old, roughly, it's actually slightly different because time and spatial expansion don't linearly relate, but we can correct for that. Roughly speaking, when the universe was half its current size scale, when it was half as big as it is now, when everything, all the distant galaxies were twice as close as they are now, uh, they've expanded away since then. The universe had a redshift. We're looking at objects at a redshift of one. And so when we look at these distant high Z uh, galaxies from way back then, we are looking at uh, the light that has traveled, say, roughly 13 or 12 billion years, whatever. I think the most distant was seen by Hubble was something like 11, and they saw 11 billion light years away. And it was That's right. when the universe was, I forget, uh, like just a few well, just a few billion years old, but uh, it needed gravitational lensing to help it see it because it was so far away. Uh, Hubble right. wouldn't have seen it with its own optics and and, uh, and ob objective diameter. So exactly. we, we look way far back. We're looking at old galaxies. These galaxies are funky looking. They're they're you know big blobs. They're they're very irregular looking. Uh, and uh, but this is a time representative when the universe, if it's expanding and getting bigger now, if we go backward, then it must logic has been getting smaller. And so so cosmologists turn the clock back, they crank the, the clock backwards, trying to run a reverse movie of the universe. And we've gotten pretty good at doing that, right, Brian? I mean, yeah, it's right. people are pretty confident about what the history of the universe is from, say, the time of the cosmic microwave background. I mean, from that point yeah, forward, that's right. we're pretty confident, right? Yeah, so here, here's the way I like to think about it, and this is courtesy of our mutual friend, uh, Sean Carroll. What Sean says, and I think it's an important distinction, when the universe uh, produced its first elements, the first element synthesis of, of the nuclei of hydrogen, not the hydrogen atom, not an electron and a proton, but just a proton, when it fused a proton and two neutrons together, say, to make helium, that event is called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Long after that time, hydrogen was able to form in its molecular or atomic state, rather, where it acquired a single electron. When that occurred, the universe became transparent to electromagnetic radiation. That took 382,000 years. So the process from when the hydrogen was present by itself and forming helium till the universe cooled enough to form atomic hydrogen that took 380,000 years. The time that it took to fuse the two protons together was about 20 minutes. So all the nuclear reactions that produced helium, lithium, a uh, little beryllium, and, and, uh, and other of the light isotopes of those, of those, so tritium is a heavy version of hydrogen, all those were produced in a shorter time period than the Big Bang Theory TV show. So all the light elements, which <laughs> then became the fuel to produce the stars that would later fuse more of the hydrogen into helium and then helium into heavier elements, eventually uh, becoming supernovae, et cetera. That process took place in what we call the first three minutes. 
uh, perhaps as long as 20 minutes. So shorter, again, than a sitcom series named after the theory. Now, when that occurred, that sort of marks the end of our knowledge or the beginning of our ignorance. If you're going backwards in time, we really don't know because we don't have examples of things at energy scales much higher than the energy of nuclear fusion. Fusion is much more energetic than fission. And we don't have many examples of processes like nuclear fusion, but are much more energetic. So we don't actually know what happened much before those first three minutes. In other words, we don't know what happened at time equals zero. So what Sean says is that looking from today back to the formation of the elements, that's the big bang. That's the expansion. That's the evolution of elements into heavier elements. But it's also the end of what we say could be known physics based on what we know today and into the realm of ignorance and perhaps speculation as to what came before. So you shouldn't hear big bang and think origin of time. You should really think origin of matter. And that's equally impressive, right? People think, oh, it's only important if you create just the time itself or the universe began. We don't know if the universe began at what we're considering to be the you know, time equals zero, right? It could okay. be. Uh, I was in uh, Princeton University yesterday, as I said, uh, meeting with my good friend Paul Steinhardt, who would be a great guest someday for you as well. And he's been on my podcast. He's written many books. One of them is called... Um, it's called Endless Universes, and it's about how the universe could be cyclically complete. In other words, our universe, the raw material that became our universe, could have emerged from a previous universe without any singularity, without any beginning of time, if you will. And so it's not tantamount. The Big Bang is not tantamount to the beginning of time. It could be. We just don't know. Now this is okay. We're on. We're getting there. We're getting where I want to go because this is this to me is. Yeah. I feel like I've been thinking about this in ways that were either inaccurate or you know just maybe uh, needed. They weren't. They weren't quite reflecting the latest ways we're thinking about this. So the time you're talking about, this time when the atoms, the first atoms, the hydrogen yes. atoms were created, uh, fused into helium and all of this stuff. This is way before the wall that we see as the cosmic microwave background, right? You're talking the first yes. three minutes. The, the furthest yes. back our telescopes can see is about 380,000 years later. Correct. Right? Absolutely correct. Okay. With telescopes that see light, the key is and, telescopes well, that see radiation. Let's gravity, say radiation. Electromagnetic radiation. Yes. Gravitational radiation you could see. Because Avi Loeb says, and you, and you tell me if I'm saying this correctly, I read it was reading it in a paper he wrote, that you can actually see a little bit further in if you use radio and you could radio uh, detectors or radio telescopes. You could see behind the CMB at the 21 centimeter line, I think. And is that right? We could maybe see just a little bit further back than the 380,000. Um, I, I wonder if that's what he means. I haven't seen that. Avi's incredibly creative. Uh, intellect. <laughs> I have not seen that. Uh, Somebody has been through happen? the Oumuamua thing, right? <laughs> that's right. Yes. So he is uh, not without his controversies. All right. Okay. I know. Yeah. So um, uh, that would be hard to believe because that signal from the formation of hydrogen, it might be maybe a thousands of years, but the duration at which it took hydrogen to go from a plasma of ions of protons and ions of electrons to then form atomic hydrogen, a proton plus a neutron, a proton plus an electron bound together. That time scale was maybe ten thousand years. Or okay, so, so we're not so going. At most you could go to. No, no, no. But with gravity waves, with waves of gravitational radiation, yes, you could theoretically go back not just to one year after the Big Bang, not just to one day after the Big Bang, but uh, or the origin of the universe. Sorry, I shouldn't say Big Bang, but not not just one you know day after the origin of time and space itself, but perhaps one trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the origin of time in our observable universe. Okay. I want to take a brief pause right here because we're yeah. getting some good questions and I'm going to go ahead and read them out because I want to go behind. I want to go back to the first three minutes because I'm about to get to the meat of some of the things I want to learn. Uh, mitzvah yeah. Gollum. <laughs> great, yes, great handle, by the way. Yeah, uh, I love what, that. What made quarks and electrons? Uh, yeah. So if I told you this, Mitzvah Golem, uh, then I think I could say, you know, it was made up of, let's say I say it was made up of clay, like a golem. Okay. So if the, uh, if, and then you could ask, well, what made the clay? Right. So there's, there's sort of this infinite regress, this, which is delightful in a way. But the answer is it was made pre uh, predominantly from the formation of, of energetic photons. So there was heat, there was radiation. Now you're going to ask me, Mitzvah Golem, I'm waiting. What's taking you so long? You're a smart guy, a girl, I don't know. Uh, that, uh, that you're going to ask me, where did that come from? 
So the answer is, again, we don't know. If there was light, if there was energy, it is certainly sufficient via a process called pair production that one can make pairs of particles, matter and antimatter, that, are, that come in these different flavors, some of which could be positrons and electrons, some could be neutrinos and antineutrinos, and other forms could be quarks and antiquarks of all different flavors. And in fact, what is said in physics often is that which is not forbidden is mandatory. In other words, if a process is not prevented from occurring due to the laws of mathematical symmetries or violations of the laws of physics, it must happen. In fact, it must happen perhaps an infinite amount of time or near infinite amount of time. In the case of the formation of you know, protons and, and molecules, et cetera, eventually, we have you know, 10 to the 80th or something protons in the observable universe. So a huge number, far beyond the notion of human co comprehension. But you can always ask the question, well, what created the light that created this, uh, these anti-quarks and quarks via pair production, and that we simply don't know right now. There are theories, one of which is inflation. I never heard of that before. So if it can happen, it must happen. Yeah. Wow. So if you have a, a wall and you throw a baseball at it, theoretically, if you take an electron and you throw it at a wall, an electron is just a small baseball in this uh, context, it will bounce off the wall. It will never get through. But because of a process called quantum tunneling, there's a finite probability. It's suppressed very heavily. It might be an exponent with a negative power, so e to the minus 1,000 or something like that. But that means like there's still a chance. And I was watching, as I told you, Return of the Jedi. And in the previous movie, it's called The Empire Strikes Back. C-3PO tells, uh, tells Han Solo. Sorry, I binge watch it. And Han Solo says, uh, C-3PO says, there's no chance uh, of getting through an asteroid belt with this density. There's no chance at all. And, and Han says, never, never tell, tell me, me the odds. odds. <laughs> like, come on. You can't say that. He's not a physicist. <laughs> the odds, if they're greater than zero, you got a chance, in the words of George Costanza. Okay, great. Well, let's get this question out of the way because we're still talking about things that we're pretty familiar with at this point. Um, God, I must be living in some kind of special astronomy bubble to say that because here we are talking <laughs> about large scale. Well, we know all this, but oh, let's just get this out of the way. But Neil Yu wants to know, and this is a common question, so uh, let's get this one uh, out there. How much bigger is the universe than the visible horizon by volume? Ah, so maybe ah. explain the difference between the observable universe and the entire universe and, and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, so we actually, it actually turns out that the universe, what we can uh, theoretically observe is, as, as I said, using light, you can go back 13.8 billion years to when the formation of the elements took place. Theoretically, you can go back at 300,000 years to that number, but that's pretty small. You basically say 14 billion years, but yet the universe's diameter is more than the speed of light times 14 billion years. In other words, that would be 14, you know, 28 billion light years. It turns out the real number is about three times that amount. In other words, there's three times more space than just the speed of light times the age of the universe. And it's for a simple fact. The universe has expanded since that time, and it's expanded at a much faster rate at different times in its early evolution, such that you, can't, you don't have a linear relationship between time and distance by this multiplicative factor. You have to solve what are called the Friedman equations, and if you do... They depend on the amount of matter and energy in the universe, and they evolve over time. Eventually, they give you an output called the Hubble parameter. You may have heard of the Hubble constant. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. extremely controversial, and we can get into that. I, I do, but I think exciting. I want to do that in another Hangout. And this one, I want to we'll do that in another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do that. Because that is actually something we can shed light on, no pun intended, <laughs> with technologies from the cosmic microwave background combined with our friend and yours at, at Space Telescope, Adam Reese. Right. And we can combine these measurements and perhaps reveal a deep mystery. Let's talk about that next Hangout. In, in yeah, we'll do that because the whole Hubble law thing is, is, is interesting in and of itself. It's that so whole, fascinating. That but the output of the Friedman equations, all, they tell you not only what the, what the Hubble constant should be, but also that the size of the observable universe from which we can get information from the CMB, it means that the CMB, the surface of last scattering, the photons that are just reaching our telescope now, they have traversed about 46 billion light years, not 14 billion, 46 billion. And so it's three times larger than you would expect. And that's because the expansion rate of the universe isn't bound by the uh, speed of light limit. That's right. Yeah, that's a That's right. It's like an ant walking on a ball as the ball's expanding is going to walk further in terms of its proper distance compared to, you know, the coordinate system in which it's embedded. It will walk farther, even though it doesn't feel like it walked farther. It walked, you know, the speed that it's walking times the time that it walks, so 14 billion years. But space itself is expanding. It will move a greater proper distance. 
Right. Okay. Uh, so, Mitzvah Gollum, uh, let me just comment and read his comment. Infrared, is, infrared that is not visible will be measured by JWST earlier than 15 billion years ago? I think that's a question, actually. Um, um, no, yeah. it won't. It can only measure things that since the production of electromagnetic radiation, what JWST is particularly um, uh, appropriate for is the measurement of the dusty kind of early universe that when the production of light from the first galaxies and first structures, it won't see heat, any uh, electromagnetic radiation from before the surface of last scattering that produces the CMB. Yeah, and I uh, just want to uh, uh, say that um, uh, the the infrared radiation is is it will it, it will what that will allow JWST to see is the very first stars and the very first galaxies to ever shine. But that's yep. pretty much where it's going to be at its limit. Andrew Planet, yeah, just want to give him a shout out. The universe, if the universe is thirteen billion something years old, does that temper temporal ascribing mean it's finite but pretty big? No, it doesn't mean that it's finite. In fact, we don't know. Again, see, the, the problem is most cosmologists, and I'll include myself too, we are uncomfortable, very deeply so, saying the following three words, I don't know. <laughs> and when we say that, we feel like, uh, is someone going to feel like, you know. I should know. <laughs> yeah, you should know everything. You're like a walking Wikipedia, right? What good are you? Um, because, you know, it's debatable what, what else we, we do in society. But, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, let's leave that aside. Uh, if you if you consider that the universe is uh, is you know has this expansion and, and is getting bigger over time, the natural question is expanding into what? Now that is a whole other coffee chat. Okay, the question of what are we expanding into? Yeah. Again, I don't know. Right. However, the material like what it's expanding into presupposes there's some greater boundary, there's some greater volume surrounding what we can see with our eyes. Like you think that there's a room behind this room over here, uh, but you don't know for sure that there is. How could you get evidence that there's something in there? Well, it's not like we're expanding into, you know, the atmosphere of the earth is getting bigger, but, uh, and going into space. But actually what space could be expanding, what our universe could be expanding into is actually very simple to describe. And I don't know if you've ever heard this and I'll, I'll try this on you, Tony, and, okay. and your listeners can tell. Go into the International Space Station, go 10 feet outside of where I interviewed Jessica Meir uh, a couple weeks ago. And she goes out there without her spacesuit. Of course, she'd die. And she was the first, she's part of the first all-female spacewalk in human history. Right. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And she's also an alumnus of UC San Diego and Brown University alumna. And so uh, we have a lot of affinities, but that's where the similarities end. Now, because uh, she's much more brave than I am. If you go outside that spacesuit of hers, you, you're, in, you're in space. You're not in like deep interstellar space, but you're in space, right? Now go out there and make a box. And that box, make it one centimeter on a side, a cube, one centimeter on a side. What do you think is in that box? Is there anything in it? Is it completely empty? Uh, Tony, I'm asking you. Oh, uh, completely empty. Yeah, we're yeah you know, we're near the sun, we're near the earth. I mean, could it be completely devoid of anything? Oh no, sorry. That, yeah, no. It, yeah. Sorry, there'll be there'll For be molecules thing, in there of something. There'll be molecules. Right. There'll be they'll, it's a high vacuum. Right. It's not the you know infinite vacuum. It's a high vacuum. I'll tell you one thing: the most of what you'll find in there are photons. You'll find exactly four hundred and nineteen. Sorry to disappoint people out. They always wanted to be four hundred and twenty, but I'm not going to say four twenty. It's four hundred nineteen <laughs> photons from the CMB dude. per cubic centimeter. Yeah, dude, let's not get that deep. Yeah. Okay, so if you have a cubic centimeter, you're trapping within that box four hundred and twenty photons from the Big Bang. Okay, from the origin of the uh, elements on the periodic table. That's leftover heat. What's between those photons? Pretty much nothing. There might be some neutrinos in there. In fact, there'll be a hundred or so neutrinos inside that box too. But what's between those? Nothing. You might get one molecule of the Earth's atmosphere, but most of the box will be basically empty, right? It's not going to be like a sugar cube. It's going to be mostly empty. You have a volume the size of a sugar cube. It has a lot of photons that you can't detect. has a lot of neutrinos that we don't really interact with. And it has maybe one or two protons in that whole box, better than any vacuum ever. Now, what is between those protons or those photons? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that's exactly what you can think about us expanding into should there be a finite region or an infinite region that surrounds us. We just don't know where that infinite region, that space, the points in space and time, where do those come from? We don't know. Yeah, you caught me uh, reading the chat when I answered that. So I was, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, was yeah. basically. No, I know you I know you know the photons. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay. So, uh, and that also is another great topic for 
a, uh, a hangout, what is nothing? Because the answer is very yeah. non-trivial. Uh, to have absolutely. absolutely nothing and is nothing even mm -hmm. possible. So there's exactly. th that's another big conversation to have. So what yes. when you the problem, of course, always comes down to our biology, I think. Imagining what we're expanding into uh, is yes. is a very difficult thing. We have these things of something expanding into something else and Correct. not something expanding into nothing. And so that's a yeah. very difficult thing to think about. When you actually think about what nothing is, it becomes a very difficult mind problem or thought experiment, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that is a huge topic in and of itself. In and of itself. So I want to um, read one more question, and then I want to get the, because this whole this whole sort of sum up this section of our discussion. Yeah. And that was from Hans Milling, who's asking uh, again. This is about the large scale structure of the universe and expanding universe. He's asking: Is the distance between all molecules expanding mm -hmm. even inside us, or the empty space between matter? So, no, so it turns out we get what bigger. is what. It, yeah. So uh, despite, you know, what I'd like to blame my, you know, recent weight change on, it's not anything to do with the expansion of the universe. Um, for example, things that are attached by chemical forces are not expanding. Our solar system isn't even expanding. The expansion is operating on the scale of galaxies, clusters of galaxies. Huge, vast volumes of space and time are getting farther apart. For example, even us and the Milky Way, the Milky Way galaxy here uh, that we're a part of, and the Andromeda galaxy, we're actually coming closer together. So if Hubble only looked at the Andromeda galaxy, his conclusion would have been very different. It would have been, uh, well, the universe is getting smaller. And that would have made a lot of sense because mm -hmm. things that have matter, if you throw a baseball up on Earth, you expect it to come back down. And so anything that has gravity, anything with matter has gravity. And that gravitational force should slow the universe down, should cause everything to be coming together if it's dynamical at all. In fact, he found the opposite. It was expanding. And that can only happen uh, using you know, certain kinds of uh, the, the solution as a solution to, again, this Friedman equation out of which comes the Hubble constant and other things. So this equation tells you when you have energy, things expand, but it's a gravitational expansion. It's not on the scale of molecules, atoms, or my waistline, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the the thing I've always heard was that if, if, if things that are gravitationally bound aren't affected by this, it's the... Yeah, or chemically bound. Or yep. chemically bound. Or it's nuclear. the large-scale yeah. so, structure of the universe, the universe as a whole. It's only things that are, bound by, that are unbound by gravity. So, so clusters of galaxies that are in what's called the Hubble flow. After you get outside of a few megaparsecs, a few million light years away from the Milky Way galaxy, then every galaxy you see is expanding away from us. Within that Hubble volume, within that region of space time, like Andromeda is the closest major spiral galaxy, within a, a couple of megaparsecs, things are getting closer to us or orbiting around us, like the Magellanic Clouds that your listeners on the Southern Hemisphere can, can see on a given night. So things that are close are gravitationally bound to us. They might orbit us like we orbit the sun. Uh, but anything beyond, much beyond the, the orbit of the distance of Andromeda is all of those are expanding away. So you have to ask the question, what makes us so special? Why is everything expanding away from us? Well, it's not. Everything's expanding away from everything else. That's right. No matter so where you, you go are. to Andromeda, yeah, you'll see the Milky Way coming towards you and everything else expanding away from it. That's why we can't say we're the center of some explosion. And that's why that's not the right way to think about what the Big Bang actually was. Right. And that's, well, that's what comes from the nomenclature. I think Fred Hoyle did us a disservice by starting with that Big Bang uh, term. But, yeah. uh, but anyway, um, okay, so there you go, folks. There's kind of a 70,000 foot altitude look at the history of the universe <laughs> up to about the Big Bang or the, the cosmic microwave background uh, horizon that we can visually see. And Brian, you were talking earlier about this point up to, up to the, the first three minutes. Now, this area of this seems to me is where the frontier of cosmology resides, is in trying to answer a lot of these uh, early, early questions within, say, the, thir the first three minutes of creation. Yeah. So... What you said earlier in the in the uh, hangout was that we can think of the Big Bang as a time when, not a t equals zero time necessarily, but a time when matter was created. Mm -hmm. This is where That's right. The and, ordinary and, matter of, of which we're made was created. That's and, right. And prior to this, we had this period where the universe was in this state of expansion that was so great. It was exponential in nature. It didn't last very long. But the the energy that came from that inflationary period is what was converted into the matter that that, that please correct anything I'm saying that's wrong. Uh, that that is that, that inflationary energy 
was created or was converted into the matter that made the universe that we now see. And this, but it, it, it didn't necessarily, time is very confusing during here because we've got a universe in the span of just moments getting exponentially huge with a lot of energy and then matter is created. Can you help us maybe get a sense of what that period in the universe was like? And was it actually the Big Bang? The Big Bang, if what you're saying is true, it's the creation of matter, then there was a period before then where exactly there was no matter, but there was all energy. Right. right. So these are all fascinating questions, and I'm so glad we can talk about them. When I describe this in my book, I talk about losing the Nobel Prize, which I recommend to folks. And, you know, yep. the link is in the description, from these so books, definitely but please, check it out. Please pick it up, because it does cover these essential existential questions. How do we come to be? What predated the universe? And I have uh, some quotations from folks like Sir Roger Penrose, who was on my channel about a month ago, uh, talking about the uh, you know 30th anniversary edition of his uh, Titanic work called The Emperor's New Mind, which is about AI and brains and stuff. But he's one of the foremost proponents of what's called a, a non-inflationary cosmology. So inflation, as I describe in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, it characterizes something that we've all thought about. Like, I always ask you, I'll ask you, Tony, what's the most important day on the calendar for you and has been your whole life? What, what's the most important day on the calendar? Oh, boy, that's a dive. I never thought of it. Um, I have several, <laughs> but I have to pick one. Pick one. Oh, yeah, pick one. What, what day of the year? Um, I guess my birthday. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, your birthday, of course. Most people say that. Or they'll say New Year's Day or Christmas or whatever, right? right? So why is that? Because that's when you originated. That's your origin story. That's when you became an entity on this planet in this universe. Yeah. So why, that's why it's so natural for every human being to wonder, what was it like on the universe's birthday? And if indeed the universe had a birthday, if it was created, if you're religious, if it, was, if it came into being, if you're not, it doesn't matter either way. We have a natural desire as human beings that makes us uncomfortable when we don't understand how something began. That's why I always point out, uh, you know, that's why the Bible, which, you know, is about like laws and, and place, place in the Middle East that, that very few people have been to, you know, it starts with the Big Bang or it starts with the origin of the universe. It's that let there be light. And, and I'm, I'm not using this to promote anything religiously. I'm just saying that shows you, and that's the best book of all time, best-selling book of all time, right? I, I always say I'd kill for 1% of God's sales, but, but I'll, <laughs> I'll settle for what I can get. Now, the origin of, of, that, of that shows you why it's so deep within the human being's psyche to want to understand origin stories. And in our case, we have come up with many different explanations for the very puzzling fact that everything is moving away from us that we've known since 1929, since Hubble really uh, took advantage of, of work done by Henrietta Leavitt and, and Vesto Slifer and other people to show that the universe is expanding. That meant it's not static, as had been thought for 2,000 years, including by Einstein. Uh, that the universe is static. In fact, he put in the cosmological constant. He called it his blunder, his greatest blunder. Those were meant to keep the universe static because it didn't seem possible that a universe with matter, look, I have this meteorite that I'm going to give away to people in the U.S., as I said, who sign up for my newsletter or my mailing list and my YouTube channel. This meteorite falls because of gravity because the earth is massive and attracts it. Well, Einstein knew the earth existed. He knew that the universe couldn't be, uh, couldn't be anything other than contracting unless there was some repulsive force keeping it at bay. Because the equations told him that things that go up have to come down. And essentially, there was no way to prevent this from happening without this famous cosmological constant. Now, why is that relevant? Well, because once you say the universe is changing and it's getting bigger with time, the natural supposition, induction, is to say, well, what would it have been like in the future? What will it be like in the future? And what was it like in the past? And in that case, it led to the starting conclusion that everything in the universe, all the stars, ga uh, gas, planets, and so forth, must have been in a form of matter. And that matter must have been, at some point, these galaxies must have been touching. And if you go back even further in time, there must have been a point in which there was all the matter, if you just naively extrapolate the observations, all the matter was compressed into an infinitesimal amount of space. And that leads to mind-boggling, uh, perplexing uh, you know, conclusions that you get things called singularities. You get things that have infinite density. And physics equations don't like infinities. They don't play well. They don't right, adjust they don't well mathematically. And so we had to come up with an explanation of where the energy and matter came from. And the hypothesis was for a long time 
that the universe could be cyclic. In fact, when Penzias and Wilson discovered the Big Bang, uh, the afterglow of the Big Bang, namely the cosmic the CMB, microwave right. background, the CMB, they said in their paper, there was a companion paper written by my PhD advisor's PhD advisor, David Wilkinson, and other people like Robert Dickey and Jim Peebles, who won the Nobel Prize this past uh, uh, um, uh December, they made a uh, they made a, a prediction that that heat and energy could have come from the collapse of a previous universe. So in other words, they never talk about the Big Bang as being the origin of all of space and time. So, but that was still a big puzzle. Where did the energy come from to convert via pair production? When you smash two high energy photons together, they can pop out of that collision an electron and an anti-electron called a positron or a quark an up quark and an anti-up quark, for example, or a neutrino and an anti-neutrino. All those processes are possible when you have enough energy. In fact, we do it all the time in the LHC. This is a very common process to make pair production from high-energy photons. And so, in fact, that production mechanism had to come up with only one thing, one ingredient in the cosmic primordial soup, and that was photons or energy. Where did that come from? That was a huge mystery. And one possibility is that that energy came from something mysterious called a quantum field. Quantum fields are very mysterious. They don't behave like any other form of matter or energy that we know about. In fact, they have just the right properties to do the following. They can create space as time evolves. So time has to be present in a sense. The universe has to come into existence for time to, to progress. And when it does, this field, this quantum field, in this case, is called the inflaton. When the inflaton uh, evolves over time, according to the theory of inflation, uh, then it can actually produce an exponential expansion. The universe can expand by a factor of 10 to the 30th power in size in the short time scale of perhaps a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. That's what the power of inflation. Now, inflation has to end, and we know that if indeed it did take place, because we wouldn't be here. If inflation didn't end and it kept expanding and inflating, the universe would be a fossil ember of nothingness. There'd be no energy left for these photons to have ever encounter one another, let alone produce a photon, because the thing would be expanding away faster than their energy scale will allow them to propagate. In other words, the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. So you shoot two lasers at each other during inflation, they, the laser beam photons will never meet because right. the universe would be expanding faster. So it had to end. And when it ended, then there was the conditions where these photons could come together and they could create via pair production. And the photons themselves, where do they come from? That's called reheating, which could be another whole podcast. And that's the process by which the energy of this inflaton quantum field sort of um, becomes a catalyst, if you will, for the production or the raw ingredients for the production of high-energy photons. And they are the, are the nucleation points for matter. Now, what is the general consensus of how long this period of inflation lasted? Mm. We characterize it by the redshift, the amount of redshift that would have under, uh, been uh, perceived if by a photon or, or the space-time uh, structure itself. That would be an infinitesimal amount of time, perhaps maybe a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, or perhaps a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. In other words, we're talking about fractions of the Planck time or multiples of the Planck time. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask. It, it's smaller yeah. than than the Planck time, that's which right. is like ten to no, the minus no, no, no. thirty. It's, it's larger. It's it's oh, good. Larger. Okay, Planck time's about to, yeah. Because otherwise, we'd the never have any being, hope of. That's right. Yeah, the Planck time and the Planck distance scale, sort of being the 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 shortest quantum of space or time in that time, one could imagine, right. and they're related by the speed of light. So there's some Planck multiple. Time, it lasted some multiple of the Planck time. This, Correct. This about a hundred Planck times. So not a very long time at all. And, and in that case, all the energy that would have been seeded, in fact, all of the fossil relics of that period, including gravitational radiation, which is what I study, uh, that, that could have been imprinted. And that imprint, that, that fingerprint of the inflationary process, in theory, should be visible to the telescopes that I build. In fact, we claim detection of that in 2014, just about six years ago, on March 17, 2014, we declared, and this is the subject of a good part of my, my memoir, the Losing the Nobel Prize, what that was like to claim and to feel that we had actually witnessed the, or, the true origin of the universe. So, and the, yeah. So BICEP and BICEP2 were yes. meant to see this signature imprinted yeah. on matter of this inflationary period. 
That's right. If, if inflation did take place, it would have produced the photons and the light, but we can't see that light for 380,000 years. Right. But the other thing that it would have produced are waves of gravity, which, like light, travel at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, and they also endure. See, if you create something that could be like the perfect, you know, the smoking gun, right, uh, and, and it's the scene of a crime, as I describe in the book, if inflation's like a crime scene, you need the perpetrator to stick around long enough for the detective to show up. In our case, we needed something that could endure from the origin of time itself in the inflationary epoch, perhaps, all the way to 380,000 years, and there's only a few things that can do that. Uh, photons have infinite life, we think. Uh, we think that um, you know, protons probably do. But again, the protons were bound up uh, with electrons only about you know, 380,000 yeah, years Yeah, they came later. much, much later. They came so much later. Yeah. And so then what you're left with are waves of gravity. And they travel at the speed of light. They endure forever. And they have just the right properties to change the structure of the CMB. And that's what we detected. We claimed we detected that imprimatur of inflation in the ultra-early universe. And, and that's why we were so celebrated and, and such an important discovery. Boy, for the first time, I finally understand that. <laughs> I'm glad. So thank you, because that was, yeah, this has been bugging me. So uh, you're still trying to find this, right? Even yes, though, absolutely. Through, through similar instrumentation, correct? Yeah. So not only am I uh, trying to do this, my uh, my friends on the BICEP experiment have upgraded the instrument two more generations since BICEP 2. And you, you'd think it would be called BICEP 4. We actually had BICEP 3, and that's been observing for several years. And now we have the BICEP array, which is the fourth generation in the BICEP series. And these are very simple telescopes. I showed you last time a refracting telescope mm -hmm. is just a lens and in front of a detector. With Galileo, it was a lens, two lenses, and then his eyeball, eyeball was a detector. Right. Mm -hmm. In the case of BICEP and its successors to it, we have a microwave detection system, which is called a superconducting transition edge sensor bolometer. And I describe exactly what all those words mean in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize. And the uh, optics that it's coupled to are just microwave lenses that are transparent or tra you know, can refract microwaves from the Big Bang. We put it at the South Pole, at the very bottom of the Earth's uh, axis. And, to and be, we observe... Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish. I was... And, and so, so BICEP ultimately was brought low. You know, spoiler alert, my book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. <laughs> if we had been successful, you know, it's arguable that it's... Argue, you know, you could argue about whether or not who would have won it, would I have won it. But there's no doubt that some members of our team uh, would have won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. It was called the greatest discovery of all time when by eminent scientists at the time. <laughs> it would and been, not only yeah. for, yeah, I mean, it would not only be for the experimentalists, but for the theorists who conceived of it, uh, the, the inflationary universe. It was a detection of gravitational waves a year and a half before LIGO announced it. So these are Well, yes, but to be things. clear, you're not actually look, detecting gravitational waves themselves. You are looking at yes. their effects on Correct. the microwave, the CMB, at a resolution that it seems to me like would be much greater than what Planck could do. Planck is currently our most high-resolution map of the CMB, if I understand that correctly. So, Well, there actually are much higher-resolution okay. instruments, but, but I'll just point out, you're making an important point. There's a distinction between a direct detection, right. when a gravitational wave comes into your laboratory and shakes up this bottle of vodka, I'll take a sip, uh, then uh, <laughs> you can actually detect that motion via seismic shifts in the detector uh, and the mirrors and the interferometer. What we were detecting would be indirect evidence that gravitational waves existed 400,000 years after the Big Bang, on a cosmic scale. It means in that direction over there, which is which is 46 billion light years away from us, and in that direction over there, which is 46 billion light years away from it, they're identical. Even though they're 93, million, uh, 93 billion light years away from each other, they had the same property. Only things that could do that are gravitational waves. And I'll point out, 1993, uh, indirect detection of gravitational waves from the so-called binary pulsar did win the Nobel Prize. And in fact, that was the inspiration for why I was so obsessed with the Nobel Prize at an early stage of my graduate career, because I started graduate school at Brown in 1993, when Russell Hulse and Joe Taylor uh, set out to measure and did win the Nobel Prize in physics for the discovery of gravitational radiation, indirectly. And Russell Hulse was a graduate student when he made that discovery. Yeah. So I thought, if he can do it, maybe I can do it and go back farther in time to the Big Bang. Yeah, this is this is amazing work, and it would the only the only discovery I could think of that might be 
uh, more amazing would be actual life somewhere else. Um, yeah, that that's be, right. That would be that would rival this. Um, yeah. The so okay, I just want to make a comment, and then I want to read some of the some of your comments and questions for Brian to answer. But yeah. So it's going back to what you said about Einstein and the blunder and adding his cosmological constant. I mean, it was when we found out that the universe was expanding, I don't think cosmologists at the time were very happy. Certainly, this idea that there was a time of T equals zero or a Big Bang, uh, all of this stuff was really upsetting to a lot of people. They would much have preferred the universe to always have existed than to have this actual beginning because it really was problematic, especially from a philosophical and religious religious yeah. viewpoint. Nobody wanted to see this. This was not a happy mm -hmm. occurrence. But it, right. nonetheless, you can't ignore the data. It's there. Now, at no point, Brian, in your, in your talking about all of what was happening in the very first few moments of the, of the universe, did you say anything about a singularity? It's, right. It used to be, uh, and I, this is a misconception I've had until very recently, that we always ran the universe back to a point in time that had infinite density, like you said, and zero volume, and a singularity, something physics doesn't like. But we're not talking about that anymore. Now we're talking yeah. about a period where matter began, may or may not have been T equals zero, we don't know. Probably could have still been time there. Probably was. I don't know. Intuitively, I would think there is still time ticking somewhere. And then we had an inflationary period that was super amazing and, and quite out extraordinary as far as our own experience goes. Again, this is not a singularity. This is not a point. Now, mm -hmm. I want to make this distinction because my wife and I were talking about this yes, two nights ago before when I told her I was going to be having you on. And she's a philosopher, and she's been learning mm -hmm. about the Big Bang. And she is also a, a – uh, she studied uh, Catholicism and, and very um, – mm -hmm. in theology. So I really trust what she has to say about these, these topics. And she says, you know, this is a real problem, this idea that there was an inflation before there was a Big Bang. Uh, yeah. if, if the Big Bang is defined as the creation of matter, then this is a problem for religion because all, especially many of the, the more um, evangelical ones, um, are, are pointing to this as, you know, a, a, a T equals zero moment, a moment of creation where, you know, easily a religious person could say God stepped in. And I think this might have been one of the impetus, impetuses impet, <laughs> of what okay. Stephen Hawking said when he said we don't need God anymore uh, to, to show the beginning of the universe. And I just want to I, I, I want to just point that out because it is no we're no longer talking about at least it seems to me, a T equals zero moment of creation. As you said before, others other uh, other cosmologists have said this could have been a cyclical thing. This could have come from another universe that started and gave us the initial conditions to just continue on. T equals zero may not even exist in these right. in these uh, in these uh, ideas. So yeah, um, you're saying so many interesting things. Yeah, like each each one of these topics could be a complete conversation, and I'd be happy to do that. I'll, I'll say a couple things. So you, you've heard of uh, Robert Jastrow. He wrote a book called right. God and the Astronomers. Yes. Now he said something. Something I that I find slightly uh, not, I wouldn't say disingenuous, but I'll say I don't agree with it. He said when the CMB was discovered, meaning that there was this hot origin of, of matter at least, and, and back then it was sort of colloquial to say it was the origin of the universe, the origin of time, but but never nevertheless. He said that it was as if there had been a band of astronomers and they had been scaling this mountaintop, and when they got to the top, they saw a bunch of theologians already celebrating and self-satisfied. It's the last last page of the book. And I find that actually incorrect because it's not that the Bible is a science book. Yeah, I, I'm Jewish. I, I point that out in the book and how the Old Testament has very interesting things to say about many things, but it's clearly not a science book. And the one way you can tell that is if if I give you this book, you know, here, I'll just, because it's next to me, or, or you know, my book is, is too far away from me to read. Here's Paul's book called The Eerie Silence. You look at it and you pick it up and there's 300 pages in it. And if there's one page in it about extraterrestrials and the rest is about the Brett Kavanaugh trial or something, you say this book is not accurate. It's not, it has nothing to do with that. It's one page. Okay. But 300 other pages. Well, if you look at the Torah, the Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, the Bible, there's 35 sentences 
that could plausibly be related to, you know, the origin of the universe. I mean, look, the sun is created on the fourth day. What does that even mean, day? So right. I don't think it's proper for Jastra to say that the that the the Torah, the Bible, the Old Testament, which which you know I have no problems with and and support and find very appealing as a philosoph uh, my philosophical side, has anything to do with it any more than this book would be if it were about the Kavanaugh trial and had a different title. That's so. Right. I want to be very careful when we talk about, you know, proving the existence of God or proving that, as Hawking said, that we don't need God. I think those are sophistic. I think that that thinking in those terms is you're using something outside its domain, outside its magisteria, as even Jay Gould said, said religion and science are, you know, as compatible as, you know, zoology and stamp collect. They're two different areas of expertise. And because you have subject matter expertise in one, as Stephen Hawking does in physics or did, God rest his soul, if he believes in God, he's almost two years since he died. I can't believe it. Uh, but getting yeah. back to that subject, he didn't have any knowledge, he, you know, his knowledge of, of yeah. philosophy, you know, so he used to say that asking what happened before the beginning of, of our universe, before the Big Bang, was as nonsensical as asking what's north of the North Pole. Right. But that actually is not a nonsensical question because now there are many models that suggest you can, ask the, you can answer potentially the question of what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang. Right. That, when people ask me, what's the one question you want to know the answer to? That's it. What happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? Nothing or something. Right. And I want to point out that um, I told you that story because I want to emphasize that none of this uh, has affected my wife's faith in God. And if anything, mm -hmm. she's she's got she reconciles her faith in God in a lot much the same way in what you just said. She knows the Bible, what it's a book about. And she also knows about, uh, you know, her beliefs in God and her theology. What she was mm -hmm. contesting was a branch of religion that uses the Big Bang as a as some kind of uh, support for their theological uh, uh, showing that God must exist because right. there was a beginning. And a beginning right. does have a lot of connotations to it. And science, if it can't answer that beginning, then, of course, that leaves open a lot of interpretations uh, from theology or whatever. If it's outside the realm of science, fine. Uh, if science can't answer it, then science can't answer it. But it what looks the, like we're getting to a point where... We are able to say some things about this moment in history or yes. in, our, in our evolution that are pertinent to this question. And Absolutely. that's why I wanted to talk about it because I didn't know a lot. I'm thinking singularities mm -hmm. and singularities. Yeah. If they're, if they, what I've always heard and what I believe in my heart is that if you've got singularities in your theory, you've got a problem with your theory yeah, because exactly. they shouldn't right. be there. So we've right. got to get rid of them because they don't, you know, well, what happens there? Well, no, I don't know. Physics doesn't work. Well, that's just right. not an answer. So, you right. know, this idea of a singularity having gone away, I used to, I used to just go, well, all right, maybe, maybe, maybe it was God. Who can say otherwise? Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's not science. Yeah. but that's not mm -hmm. true anymore. And, yeah, and I so, think, and that's what makes it so delightful to do what, what I get paid to do, and to think about these questions and discuss them with people like you. Look, if you, what's another example of a singularity that you and your listeners have probably heard about well, in holes. physics in cosmos? Black holes. Okay. Right. So, Tony, next time you have an expert on about black holes, ask him or her, what's at the center of a black hole? What's there? Right. What's it made of? Yeah. You sent in all this. It's a singularity. You don't know. So right. how come we say, and they're they're comfortable saying that. So why not say we don't know what a singularity is in the cosmological context? Because I think there's, and, and again, I'm not proselytizing at all. I could care less if people believe, don't believe. I call myself a devout, I call myself a devout agnostic. What is an agnostic? <laughs> Someone who he or she is questing scientifically, perhaps, to know the answer, but not presupposing that he or she knows the answer. Right, now, it's why an open question. are people more? Why are people more comfortable to say, "I don't know"? Tony, when it comes to this, what's at the center of a black hole than what's at the center of the beginning of the universe, because that is connected philosophically, theologically to perhaps the existence. And again, I don't necessarily believe one way or motivate one way or another, but it's uncomfortable to say, I don't know when the possibility, if you're atheist, could be, it could have, it could have been from a deist, a deist, a deity of some kind or another. Yeah. So I think that's what, but that's what makes my life so enjoyable is that we're actually building instruments to perhaps answer that question. Because if we succeed in a sense, we don't ever like to say we succeeded in looking what we found because that's confirmation bias susceptibility. But if we do find that it's not possible to have a cyclic universe, that would have tremendous implications for some of these very questions that you're asking. Are we ever going to have any hope? This is why I mean I'm a big I, I bash on string theory all day long because I think it's <laughs> it's just not even science. But but are we ever going to be able to verify any of this 
stuff. Mm, very interesting. So what I just said a second ago actually has pertinence to what you just asked, because I said, we won't be able to prove, you know, inflation occurred, but we could rule out its chief alternative, which is a cyclic cosmology, or as Roger Penrose calls it, this uh, conformal cosmology, this aeon cosmology, we can actually rule those out. So that's what's called falsifying a theory. Yeah. Uh, when you can prove a theory is wrong using data, that doesn't prove what is true, it proves what is not true. That's true. And, and that's as close as you can get to truth in physics. Now you're asking a question, can we prove that string theory or can we find evidence that string theory is correct? The no, answer no, no, is not no. that string theory because we can't, yeah. but I'm talking about this inflation, right. uh, this inflationary yes. uh, idea. So I think the best hope that we have is to either exclude all the other possibilities, find evidence that inflation is wrong, or say simply that we'll never have, it'll be forever hidden behind sort of a firewall by this existence that is commensurate with a singularity. And we, so, we just, we, we don't know now, we're gonna have answers hopefully from the Simons Observatory, which is a project that I co-lead with, with uh, 300 other people in, on uh, planet Earth, a pretty exciting project. That's my next big project in the Atacama Desert, Northern Chile. And uh, we hope to find answers that will tell us uh, if we can rule out models of inflation, models of cyclic cosmology or eon cosmology. And that to me is the most exciting part of what I get to do. And so we can make statements like, if inflation didn't stop, then we wouldn't be here. If inflation went on forever, then we would see the following thing. So we can make statements about if inflation occurred in the way that we think, then we should see the following things in the CMB. Uh, and That's you look right. for those things. So, and if you, right. and, 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 these, and if we do see these things, then what this means is certain things didn't happen. And so exactly. you can rule stuff out and narrow it down, but we're, we're not probably ever going to get to a definitive answer on stuff that happened behind the veil of the CMB, just because of 100%. the way our, our universe exactly is structured. Exactly correct. Exactly. Okay. I couldn't say it better myself. All right. I hope that you guys are following along with this and that you got something out of it. God knows I did. This was awesome. And I, I, I want to uh, go with just a couple questions because I know, Brian, you got to yeah. go. But uh, yep. there, there's, a, there's a couple here that I want to – that I uh, hope I can find. Um, oh, boy. Darn it. Um, Oh, shoot. Here's one from, okay, Yuriko, Roberto. This is from, I, I wanted to uh, ask this. How is it possible that two points in space, time, uh, can expand or move away from each other at a rate that is faster than the speed of light? Mm. So, uh, so the only, I mean, I could say to you, well, they're faster than the speed of bread. And you can say, well, what does that mean? What is the speed of bread? There's some limit at which something cannot travel faster than uh, this this value, and it happens to be that what we say is information cannot be propagated according to Einstein's theory of special relativity faster than the speed of light. But that says nothing about the separation of space-time itself. It just says that you cannot send a signal between two places in space that travels faster than the speed of light. Okay. So there's nothing forbidden about the actual space-time itself expanding at any given moment, at any given moment, perhaps faster than the speed of light. In fact, we are, there are regions that we see quasars, say, at a redshift greater than one. That means they're receding faster from us than the speed of light. <laughs> and we can get into how it's possible to see them. We see, as you pointed out, we see quasars and, and objects, as you pointed out, redshift seven almost, yeah. redshift even more than seven. That means, seven, formally speaking, it means about seven times faster than the speed of light, yet we can still see them. The CMB surface is expanding a thousand times faster than the speed of light, but we can never reach it. We can never send a laser beam to it and say, we are here. In fact, anything outside of what's called this this uh, you know this particle horizon, we can't communicate with right, Well, I, I got really bad news, and that is that you can pretty much stop your work because, Neil, you just won the Nobel Prize. Um, here, here it is. Here's the answer to everything. Okay. Is the speed of light okay. limit just the limiter of the AWS cloud server plan our sim is running in? <laughs> there it is. He yeah, saw there's it. another right. question. Okay, Th that's right. So you, we can stop uh, looking for all this stuff. We're never going to get past <laughs> it because we don't. We can't pay Jeff Bezos enough money for enough computing right. cycles to uh, to have a better that's simulation. Prime. That's the prime directive. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon Prime directive. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, I guess I guess we better stop. It's after four. Brian, this was a lot of fun, man. Thank you. It was. So much. It was. And I um, I love talking to you. I love the questions in the chat. I'll try to answer them if I have time. Remember to yeah sign up for my YouTube channel. Just Dr. Brian Key. I'll uh, put a link in the chat right now. Maybe, Tony, you could put, pin that to there, too. Yeah. 
Uh, and then sign up. If you live in the U.S., again, I'd love to send you a meteorite. Here they are. They're magnetic because they're made of star stuff. They're made of the core of a Type 2 supernova that, fortunately for us, didn't detonate uh, too close to home, but just close enough to form the material in our Earth's core and us and the hemoglobin in our blood. Mm -hmm. So sign up for the mailing list. If uh, Even if you're not, sign up as well. And if you're in the U.S., I'll send you one of these. Do you, um, do you live stream your, your podcast recordings? Uh, I, I, they're all on, they're all on YouTube. Um, I don't usually do live chat cause it's a little difficult to set up. Tell me about, I know questions. it's like, ah, I'm paying attention <laughs> to everything at once is, yeah, is a real, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like to just go deep and, and talk to the authors or the, or the, or the space walkers as the case may be. Yeah. Check out the channel and, and be in touch, uh, as well. I love talking that to your, to your viewers. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, Dr. Brian Keating, uh, with us, professor of astronomy at University of California, San Diego, working on a great many things, author of the book, losing the Nobel prize link in the description box. Please support him and uh, his channel by uh, either getting the book or signing up and subscribing to his newsletter and uh, YouTube channel. So thanks again, Brian. When you, will you come back and let's do the, uh, and let's do the talk about um, nothing. Anytime. Yeah, let's do it in uh, in March. It'll be maybe on the anniversary of the Bicep 2 announcement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thank good. you. So, all right. Thank you, Brian. Bye, all right. everybody. Thanks uh, for your questions. Bye, Tony. All right. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Thank bye. you. I want to I'll get someone to stop the stream now. I want to thank you all so much for watching. And I'll be back next uh, Tuesday on Tuesday on, on T-Cube, Tony's Twitch Tuesday. Also, whoa, I just got um, cut up because he left the he left the chat. I'll do that. Uh, Tony's Twitch Tuesday. And then uh, again next uh, next Thursday, probably be just me uh, talking about uh, some topics that are of interest to me, most notably things, probably do some SpaceX stuff. And there's a lot of good news coming out that we want to uh, – that we want to cover during that Thursday. So I'll be back then. Man, you guys were awesome. Thanks for the great comments and questions. And a uh, little forewarning here in about 55 minutes, watch my channel. I've got a new space video coming out on Apophis. It'll, it'll break at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern time. So please look out for that. And uh, I, just, I just put it up before I started this stream. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. And as always, keep Looking up. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.